Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we're talking to, well, we're going way back to punk rock, British punk rock, the best kind of punk rock. We're talking to guitarist Nigel Bennett. So here's Nigel's story. In the late 70s, he joins up with the members. I don't know if you guys remember the members, they were so good there for a while. This song right here, Working Girl, is probably their best known song, at least in the States. But they had other things and other, other hits in the UK specifically. Punk mixed with reggae, mixed with pop. It's kind of like the Buzzcocks, but also sort of ska. It's excellent stuff. Well, shortly after Working Girl breaks out in the early 80s, the band calls it quits. And Nigel kind of floats around for a little while. He gets he works with people like Julian Lennon and a few others. Eventually in the 90s, early 90s, he joins up with the Vibrators, the punk band, the Vibrators. Now this is not peak period Vibrators with like pure mania. This is later when they're still out there making it happen. And he stays with the Vibrators ever since. Over COVID, the rest of the band members all retire. So it's just Nigel out there kind of carrying the torch. And this is what's really interesting about this. So a little over a year ago, Nigel gets remarried and moves to Philadelphia. And he kicks off the Vibrators again as the Vibrators V2. And it's I liken it to being kind of an entrepreneur. You are, he is now a, a small business owner and he owns the vibrators and he needs to build up customers so that he can make a living. And by, and he's doing this by furthering the cause of both the vibrators and he's mixing in some members songs into what he does now. You think about the difficulty of that though, especially in the States where the vibrators were never, I mean, they were respected, but it, you know, not as much, not as much as in the UK, not as much back with as they were with the Pure Mania period, but this is what he's doing and devoted his life to. He also, and they still continue to put out albums, the Vibrators do. He puts out some solo albums too that sound nothing like these punk bands that he's in. Anyway, it's fascinating stuff. And I really, he's one of the nicest guys. Believe it or not, he's best friends with Steve Lillywhite. And everyone knows how I feel about Steve, so, <laughs> We've all heard how excellent Steve is. Nigel's the same. That's why they're buddies. There's stories in here about Iggy Pop and everything else. It's been a wild ride, but I love what he's doing, and I really support what he's doing now by kind of keeping this alive. He's from Philadelphia, but when we talked, he was in London. Um, you're a friend of Steve Lillywhite, is that right? Uh, I wish I was as good a friend as you are. So he... Uh... He and Trevor Horn are kind of that go back and forth as my favorite producers of all time. And, um, and I had been wanting to have Steve on here for years and he kept kind of blowing me off and he finally agreed to do it about a year and a half ago. And it was one of the greatest three hours, bless his heart, that he's of my life. And, uh, so I, I text him once in a while, if I'm talking to someone that I know he knows. So I let him know that I was talking to you. Cause I remember you two were friends. Well, the only person I like blowing me off is my new wife. But there you have it. But um, no, Steve, he, he texted me from Bali and said, I hear you're doing a podcast with a friend of mine. And uh, I said, oh, yes. So I'm that's so what he glad. said. I'm yeah. so glad. It's funny you say this, Nigel, because um, about a year ago, a, yeah. a friend of mine named Steve Cooper said, yeah, yeah, I'm talking to this guy who um, 
his be- he's best friends with Steve Lillywhite. And I was like, oh, who is it? And he says, Nigel Bennett. I said, those two are best friends? How, how, how is that? And now I know it's because of Adrian and the connection. Yes. Like that. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, he's coming out for his wedding here in Philly soon. And I was like, Steve Lillywhite's traveling all the way to Philly for someone's wedding? That's crazy. And yet now I piece it all together over this last year. Why? He was my what- best man. He was yes. my best and it's absolutely wonderful. Sorry, I'm just... Right. Um, so it was lovely of him. We go way back. I met him when I first met the members, before we got a break, and the drummer said, Adrian, he said, you know, I think you get on with my brother. Adrian's really straight and everything. And he took me round to meet Steve, and he was right. We've been best friends ever since. And this is ah. 1978. Oh, I, uh, I just... I. I mean, I love everything he has touched in his career, basically. I love him. And, and he's such a fun, engaging, talkative, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't hold back. He just tells it he's honest and candid. And I love people like that, you know? Well, hopefully you'll find me the same because I'm honest and candid. And I probably why we're friends. Probably I, why we're friends. Um, it wasn't a year ago, but I did a TV interview with Steve Cooper. Yep. And I know this because I've, I was only, I've only been in America the last 14 months, even though I'm in London now. Yes. Um, but, and, and it was a few months in that Steve did the interview. I think it was possibly in the summer. I well, think so too. I remember uh, him telling me about it and everything. So, what are you even doing in London right now? Why are you there? I just came over to uh, see a couple of family members and to bring some medication to a dear friend of mine who has cancer. And you can only get this med, it's new medication in America. So, I bought it over for him. Oh, wow. And I'm here only 10 days, and I got a broken leg, which meant traveling was a real bitch. And I'm going back back next Thursday in six days. Oh, what happened to your leg? Well, I passed out from something else, not drinking drugs. I had an illness, and I passed out, and I was taken to hospital by ambulance. And as I was recovering, I said, God, my foot really hurts. And they said, well, we better have, as they were discharging me, they said, well, we better have a quick look. Took me to x-ray and they said, oh, it's fine. Just put it up and put ice on it. A week later, I was hobbling around in pain, went to the ER. They did more extensive x-rays and said, uh, you got a fracture and showed me. And so luckily it hadn't moved. So no surgery, but I have a boot on and I find oh. it cumbersome and it's unbalancing. Oh, yeah. Especially hurt. when you're so traveling. Yes, it hurts, and you're it on hurts. a plane for hours and hours yes. with that thing. And I've got, oh. I've got to go back on one as well on Thursday. So, but oh. you know what? I'm taking back a guitar and a speaker cabinet with me, and so I'm really, you know, that's mission accomplished. Yes, yes. Okay, Nigel, I got to be honest. I, I mean, I've always liked the members. I've always liked vibrators. Piecing that you have like three. Well, two major pr- major careers, and then a third if you count your solo career, mm-hmm. and they interweave at at. Sometimes you're doing both, but sometimes you're just doing one. But you'll go back to the other. It's kind of making my head swim in getting ready to talk to you, because I mean, a lot of it I knew, but a lot of it I didn't, and getting the timelines right. So anyway, forgive me if I make mistakes or I miss something in this. I've been a fan for a long time, but 
trying to piece it all together. So tell me this. By the way, I must say, I listened to a couple of your other podcasts with Derek Forbes, who I used to know oh, ages ago, and Budgie from Susie and the Banshees. So I did my research too, and I thought they were very good. Oh, bless you. Thank you. I've been so lucky. You know, I, uh, I've just been a music fan forever. And I thought, where can you, where can I put this knowledge and this passion? How can I give back? And so I started this almost nine years ago and I've been able to talk to my favorite people. You know, it's a huge blessing. Oh, good. Okay. So I know the vibrators is your primary concern right now. I want to go back to the beginning for a minute though, because something I was a major question I had for you, I read something about you that's gonna that might X this out. I read that when you auditioned for the members, you didn't even know what reggae was. Is that true? Yeah, I that's the the paper to look for all auditions back in the 70s was Melody Maker. It doesn't exist anymore. And yeah. by the way, my only child, my daughter, I named Melody. Yes, but there you go. So there was this ad. I answered every ad there was, and I auditioned for Iron Maiden and the Sex Pistols. But I always tell people it's the one that says yes that counts, right? The one that's right. And it said, wanted lead guitarist for rock-reggae. I couldn't even pronounce it. I thought it was ragga band. <laughs> and I, I didn't care. The two words lead guitarist is uh -huh. what I cared about. So, of course, I phoned them up. And I went over and I met the main guy, JC, not the lead singer, but JC was the, uh, the rhythm guitarist. And we immediately liked each other. He checked me out before going to an audition, because imagine if I was totally unsuitable, that's smart. The number of auditions I went to where it was just wrong instantly, not just yeah. for me, but for them. Uh -huh. And JC met me first, and then we realized we were on the same page. And I said, I don't know what reggae is. And he said, don't worry, we'll show you. And then I went to the audition, and they rang me the next day and said, you're in. We're sending you a cassette. This was on a Friday, and the first gig was on the Monday night. I had to learn all the songs of original material. So I had to learn these, and the very first song of the set, I had to start on my own and my brain was jumbled. Um, and I, uh, but I did it and I realized yeah. that reggae was playing on the offbeat. So it was yes. a great education. Yes. And Nigel, uh, do you ever sit back and think if I had, if I had gotten the Iron Maiden job, how different your life would have turned out? No, you know what I, mean? I, don't, I don't believe in ifs back then. Okay. Everything happens when it's supposed to. I yeah. wasn't into as soon as I walked in, it was very obvious. They were very working-class East End guys from London. And in Britain, by the songs. your background yes. makes a lot of difference. Yes. And I was, to them, posh. Yeah. And I, they were very courteous. We played a couple of numbers, but we were just on a different wavelength. And yeah. we said goodbye, and that was it. Um, it, I knew I wasn't going to get that gig, mm -hmm. and they knew it too. But we did jam for a couple of numbers. And the, uh, guy, the guy there was... What's his name? Dave, uh, the guitarist. Uh, he's still with them. The long blonde hair yes, guy. Um, I'm yeah. suddenly blanking on his name. Yeah, People but are anyway, yelling at wanted, me. Anyway. They wanted a second guitarist, and it wasn't me. Yeah. Okay. Well, what, what a different life that would have been. Now, I want to come right back to this, but real quick, I have to insert something. I read somewhere, maybe it was something Cheryl sent over. Did you audition for Crowded House at one point? Yes, I did. I forgot about that. That was when I moved 
in a drunken haze to Australia and I went along to meet them all in Melbourne at someone's house but it was my rock bottom year I don't drink at all now and I was obviously um, I met Neil Finn and some of the others and in fact I saw Neil Finn some many years later when Steve was doing something with him in London uh -huh. And he remembered. I didn't think he'd remember. <laughs> Maybe I made such an appalling impression. But of course, I love Neil Finn's stuff and Crowded House. But that didn't happen. I was looking for work in Australia. I was thinking of relocating. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I've forgotten all about that. They're they're probably my favorite band ever, and Neil is probably my favorite songwriter ever. So when I read that, I was just in shock. I just thought, I can't believe these paths have crossed. Okay, let me go back to what I was saying before. The thing that I find really interesting, because I'm a huge fan of the two-tone and ska, and what was it that was so provocative about reggae to the British punk rockers at that time? Like you guys, the Clash, everyone's incorporating it into their sound. Pretenders. Well, why punk punks? And why was reggae that provocative? The punks were around, but another movement was around, the, all the bloody skinheads. And for some reason, they had adopted reggae. So I think it was a crossover. And... Um, some of the reggae uh, skinhead bands and, and all that played reggae. Now, I learned... And obviously we play a sort of more white man's version and we were doing it before the police who took it and commercialized Another it and example. became huge. Yes. Walking yes. on the moon and all that, you know, yep. um, wonderful stuff. I love the police. But uh, so it was a joy to play and I always want to up my game. So suddenly I learned about reggae and Offshore Banking Business, the second member single was such a joy to play. And I remember recording it, and it was just nice because we weren't a reggae band. If it was the whole set, I wouldn't have liked exactly. it. We incorporated it, the odd reggae song, and the odd, I don't know what the members was, rock, punk, you know. Yes, yeah, agreed. I just had a thought of, this might be a super dumb question. When you say skinheads, I think of, like, white nationalists. No, and that's politicized in in america more they they weren't i remember as a kid if you had long hair you were terrified they'd go around in gangs and chase people and beat them up they wore dr martin boots shaved heads uh levi's pulled up 
with uh-huh. braces. That yeah. was their uniform, and they were just skinheads. They weren't anything to do with nationalism. I think later on, uh, a lot of them were racists, but when yeah. I first encountered them, it was simply run away. They were, okay. you know, you yes. don't want to be caught by skinheads. Yes. Nothing to do with politics or anything. Okay. I, I I think I'm combining the two because I've had the same thought. And I'm thinking, well, why are a bunch of white nationalists so into reggae then? Doesn't that go against uh, what you're all about? But maybe not. No, not in okay. England. It wasn't about politics. The, the white nationalists adopted that look, uh-huh. I think, in America. And I mean, it's very military, if you think yes. about it. Big, oh, yeah. Big boots, shaved head. It's militaristic. Yeah. And, you know, they like to strengthen numbers in gangs, patch them on their own. I think they'd run away, but they like to be in gangs. And um, just like motorbike gangs, for that matter, sure. Sure. you know, the herd mentality. Yes, absolutely. It's true. And I want to talk about radio because you wrote it and it's fantastic. And oh. I, first of all, where did the germ of the idea, let me ask you this too. Did the end result, which is so like rich with horns and deep sounds, is that what you envisioned when you wrote it? And then secondly, I want to know about what it was like working with Martin Russians. Now, it wasn't how I envisaged it at the beginning. Nick and JC dominated all the writing, and I thought, it's my turn to have a go. And I thought, I'll write a song. And I thought, well, if I write about the radio, maybe DJs will like it. I was right. And also, um, I Nick, God bless him, the late Nick Tesco, he had quite a narrow vocal range. So True, me being point. a guitarist, I wrote it around, I knew his range, and wrote it in a key that I knew he could sing. Mm-hmm. And it was that simple. And then I took the idea, like we did, to the band. And then we uh, arranged it, if you like. And then we were in the studio with Martin Rushant, who, much to my surprise, because Nick and JC did everything, and as sometimes Chris, uh, he loved it. And worked, and we had a horn section by that time. And there's two things about having a horn section, both good and bad. If you have one, you feel obliged to use it on every song. And um, and also, it's two more air tickets, hotel rooms, God knows what. You know, we were a big band at one point. Yes. And, uh, but it, it enhanced that. And Martin came up with 
a lot of the production ideas and then I couldn't believe it. They were looking for the next single and they, the management came down and said, we've decided what the next single is. It's radio. I couldn't believe it. And it did really well. Yes. Yeah, big hit in Australia, right? Yeah, it was a hit in Australia and they played played it in America and a few years ago there was a DJ band or however you call it called Duck Sauce and they approached me and got the rights to sample it and re-released it on on something and so and the BBC took it as a jingle in Britain so it it, it was okay it just I made me feel that I could write too that's crazy. Good for you. So one thing I'm curious about, I feel like in the States, you guys are probably best known for two things. One is appearing in Erga Music War, which is one yep. of the greatest concert films ever. I believe that belongs in the Smithsonian. It is oh. such an impeccable piece of culture and musical history at that time. It's invaluable. Anyway, um, there's that. And then there's Working Girl, which was starting to get some traction on MTV. But my understanding is that you guys broke up shortly after that. And I was thinking, why why break up when things are finally starting to break? It wasn't quite like many things that simple. Working okay. Girl got on heavy rotation on MTV. And it yeah. was just as MTV was starting. And I quickly realized how vitally important it was. Uh, because... That was the era in the early 80s that record companies spent hundreds of thousands making music videos to compete to get it on MTV. And it's if you're in L.A. or New York, you expect that people are watching it. But I remember one night in the middle of the night, we pulled in for gas somewhere in one of the Carolinas. And I got out of the bus and went to into the gas station to buy a Snickers or just to stretch my legs. And the guy working there, and I can't do southern accents, he said, hey. When I seen you on MTV, and I thought, wow, this is powerful. And you, in the middle of the night, in the, in the middle of the country, America, had seen me on the television. And I thought, this is reaching people. And yeah. it really was. It was make or break. And we were lucky to get on heavy rotation. It did us the world of good. Yes, shortly after, we eventually broke up for two reasons. Adrian left to get married, and that spoiled the chemistry. Someone else stood in, but it's never quite the same. And the other thing is, we were looking for a new record deal in England and didn't get one. Now, maybe if we looked in America, but again, there's no ifs. So yeah. we, we, were, we were without a record deal, even though we just had this hit in America. And there's, you know, it's just the way it goes. And I think we've come to the end, which I think was a real shame, but yeah. it's what it was, you know? Yeah. Was there a follow-up single after Working Girl? I don't even know. Yeah, I think there was in England, but I can't remember the time. Okay. I remember certain records, but chronologically, I don't always know. Okay. I just so, wondered if there was, you know, if a record company was like, hey, we're getting some traction with Working Girl. Let's hurry and get the guys in and make another video and get that out there and see if we yeah, can keep you, this train moving. You would think, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you hear about things that do happen, not about things that don't. And for all yeah. the things you see that do, there's hundreds that don't. Oh. So we had no funds, and, um, and I'm not talking about living any kind of lavish lifestyle, but we all had to eat and pay the rent. Yes. And with the record deal disappeared, that was very, uh, it's like the rug had been pulled from under us. Yeah. I wanted to ask something because I was unaware of this until getting ready to talk to you. I didn't realize that people held 
the second album, The Choice Is Yours, as being so uh, such a letdown, I guess, compared to the first one. I love both. I've never thought of one as being... I mean, the first one has a lot of like first album energy to it that the second album does, but that's true for everybody. I think it's great. Like, Flying Again is so good. Were people in real time, because I don't remember this, was there a lot of like humming and hawing over choices yours saying it's not as good? No, not that I remember. And I tried not to read papers, so I'm not even sure if it was slagged off. But, it, it, you know, record companies, if you're in a band, it's all so cool and groovy and they wear different clothes. But you're baked beans to them. You're a product. Unless you're selling lots of numbers, they look at the next band. So it didn't sell as well for whatever reason. And... um, I never listen back, but you just mentioned flying again. I love that. That's one that Chris wrote, Chris Payne. Uh, I thought it was a good record, but I mean, we did our best. That's all you ever do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I didn't know, because like I said, I didn't know that. And getting ready to talk, I saw that in a couple spots, and I thought, this is surprising to me. I wonder if everyone was aware of this at the time. I, I mentioned Martin Russian a minute ago. I did what was it like working with him? Was it any different or more special? Because he, you know, he had his finger on the pulse with like the human league and all the other stuff he was doing at that time, Joy Division. Yeah. He was great. He had a very dry sense of humor and so do I. So I got on with him just dandy. For the others I can't speak. Maybe sometimes they conflicted, but I found it a piece of cake. And I remember being down at his residential studio uh, out of London near Reading. And we did the album. And I think at one point we were on the night shift or and then we left and someone else came in. It was either the human league or Dex's Midnight Runners, but he's and he ran them both back to back. And uh, I thoroughly, especially after what he did with radio, I thought that was great. And other things. So he was innovative. He yeah. did tell me, he said, Nigel, I think the guitar's dead. It's all going to be uh, keyboards, synthesizers from now on. And I thought, I'll show you. <laughs> it, you know. And luckily, the guitar certainly isn't dead. I mean, yeah. look at ACDC. They don't use their synthesizer, and I yeah. love them. 
Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Of course. Okay. Yeah. When you look back at that period, because we're gonna we're coming up to the end of that chapter of your life and on to the next ones. When you look back on that period, what's just your favorite memory of all of that? Playing Reading Festival was really? amazing. I had all these bucket lists. One of the things I always wanted to do was play the Hammersmith Odeon, and we did it for the first album. The title track, Chelsea Nightclub, was recorded there, but then Reading Festival, and we played it, and we got a bloody encore. Way to look out and see people to the horizon, you know. But there were so many, I mean, moments of feeling good, and you have to, otherwise, you're on the wrong game because it is so grueling. Yeah. And you're with people that are essentially colleagues. People think a band is a happy gang. If you work in an office at five o'clock, you go bye bye, see you tomorrow. In a band, you don't, you're stuck with them. For better or worse, you travel all bloody day. You know, I always think you get paid for the for the 22 hours, not the, the other two that you're playing. Um, being able to keep it together. Yeah. And so that, I'm sorry, I just focused on the negative, but I mentioned oh, okay. Festival. Uh, recording I always love because it's yeah. something magic when you put something down and hear it back. Yeah. Uh, and meeting one or two friends i mean it's steve lillywhite who's a dear friend and the other one that i met with him is adam from you too we oh, steve and yeah. i were in a pub and they came over and uh, there are about four of us in this london pub and steve was asked to do their first album and then steve adam and i are still the three amigos that's wow good for you yeah. that is great that's great okay so members come to an end your rock and roll dreams, you're in your early 20s, your rock 20s, your rock and roll dreams have come true. And now what? I mean, I know right. you play with Julian Lennon and and Hugh Cornwell and and you bounce around and do some session work, but is it as satisfying? Are you concerned at all? Or are you thinking, this is great, this is the life I signed up for? Not at all. No, it really? wasn't satisfying. And yes, I was very concerned. I actually realized when I was in the members, I was in a hotel bathtub, which was unusual. It was showers. And I looked down at myself naked in a bath, as you are, and I thought, this isn't everything. It's not, this isn't going to, to sustain. And I realized then that there's going to be a long, troubled road ahead, and it's not easy, and it's not a given. And it wasn't. So I, I did anything where anyone would pay me a buck. Yeah. So the sessions, as you say, Julian Lennon, where I was doing bass and TV stuff around Europe, Hugh is a good friend. Um, 
And anyone that asked me to play guitar, I would, and uh, on on a record. But other than that, I went to started. All, I got married. No, first of all, I crashed and burned. I nearly drank myself to death. Went to rehab, got it together, and um, that was in 1986. And I haven't drunk for 37 years. And then I went to auditions, and uh, there was one for a lead guitarist. And I went along, it was the Vibrators. And I really immediately hit it off with Knox, the lead singer. And to this day, we're very good friends. And in fact, we were texting just before this interview because I need to see him. Um, but he's lovely and a great songwriter and just a dear friend. So I will go and see him in the next day or two. I have to rest my leg because I went to see someone by the coast and got back yesterday and realized I'd overdone it and yeah. my leg's aching. So to, the, to today has been a day of rest yeah. to, so my legs better but i will see Knox anyway the vibrators yes and i or uh, they called me back the next day and said we'd like you to join learn the songs off we go and i yeah. i was with them on and off for 30 years i had to take breaks because it was endless grueling touring and it did my head in and i was married um so i did it and then took breaks and other people willingly you know took my place but then i did it and i was with them until the end and the band broke up in the pandemic yeah in, in, yeah. in london the original vibrators as such right right and now you're out there as vibrators version two playing the hits and i if i if i read correctly you're playing you play member hits as well too right it's kind of a combination of your whole career that's right i'm actually gonna when I get back, start to put another couple of members' songs in the set and some of my, my solo stuff. Great. Um, we can give them permission legally to use the vibrate, not the vibrators, but the vibrators V2. And I love the songs that Knox wrote, Knox wrote yes. so much. And I think they, they mustn't go unnoticed. Yes. And I really adore playing them live. And I still, um, you know, and when I look down and see people smiling up, I think I'm doing my job. Yes, so, absolutely. Now, I'm not a tribute band because I think I have a right to play it as I was in them for 30 years. And of course, I was in the members as well. So we always do Sound of the Suburbs that goes down well. Just decided we're going to put Working Girl in, particularly in America. Good. Because in America, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it'll be our version. It's a power trio. So I will do the best I can. I've bought an echo pedal, a new one, and uh, because there's some looping stuff. And, and, right. and I will sing it and do my very best. Yeah. Yeah. Man, 
do you, it sounds like given the state you were in, I mean, granted you had cleaned up and, be, and gotten sober by that time, but still yeah. just the grind of a career. What a lifeline being able to join the vibrators must have been at that time, needing your talent and your abilities to play the guitar and write good songs for their volume 10 album. What a, what a blessing that was. You mentioned earlier about things happening at, for reasons at the right time. I landed on my feet, John. Yes. It was absolute. I never thought I'd get the same feeling as in the members. Actually, it was better. Yeah. Knox, I adore as a friend, and he writes great songs, and I get such joy. And each time we were going to make a new album, and we did many, he would have the roughest demos that he'd make at home. And I couldn't believe how very quickly we'd shape them into songs in the studio. Yeah. And it was a joy. And then some of them we'd play live. And um, I really enjoyed, I loved playing the music, but the older you get, grueling tours don't get any easier. In fact, they get harder the older you get. When you're yeah. in your 20s, you party all night, sleep it off in the day while you're traveling, and you have that energy of youth. And But then after that, it takes its toll, and sleeping in yet another ghastly hotel room, waking up every morning, packing, is Groundhog Day, except ah. the gig is different. Yeah. And, um, and it takes something to be able to do that. Yeah, I bet. That's one thing I was thinking, honestly, especially listening to a lot of the Latter-day Vibrators albums that you've made and your own solo stuff, which I want to ask you about more of here in a second. And I thought, it's it can't be easy to be a punk with all that that means at this stage in your life. Do you see yourself that way? Or is it like I read somewhere that you view it as cabaret? And I thought that's such a great quote. What do you define that? Explain that to me. What do you mean when you say that punk now for you is cabaret? Well, it's nostalgia. They have the Reading Festival and all these people who are now 50s and 60s come out in all their punk regalia. And it's nostalgic and it's sort of cabaret. They want to see something. It's the vibe in the 70s. Well, it was anger, and there was over here, there was terrible unemployment, the three-day week here. All those things that people rebelled about really strongly and did it, and then there's not that now. I mean, God, economically things are tough, perhaps, but it's not for the same uh, anger reasons that people are in bands or, uh, or the audiences either. So I think it's... Nostalgia, nothing wrong with that. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in the Who, the Rolling Stones, or whatever. People want to go see bands that turn them on at a certain time to chase that dragon of the feeling that made them feel good. Yeah, yeah, I get it. One of the things we try to cover sensitively on here is the business side of things. And I am curious, now with you being the sole... I mean, you're basically kind of an entrepreneur. The Vibrators V2 is your business, right? You're the CEO of this business, and maybe you weren't in that position before. What are you learning now about having to run a rock band as a business that you may not have known before? Or is it just a world of a lifetime of of experience has prepared you for this day? Definitely not. I'm learning all the time, and it's still early days. I mean, the main thing is that I have a wonderful band that I'm actually happier with than ever. I've got two guys in um, the Philly area, and they it's a given that I'm running it because I've got the name and where I came from. I don't find that easy, So, but we do it. 
And musically, it's just really good. It clicks and gels. And these are guys I'd be I'm friends with anyway, regardless sure. of the band. So I'm so happy with that. But as for running a business, I'm learning every day. I'm, I'm not sure, especially in America where everything's different. Um, so I'm, you know, learning as I tread. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, so I'm not. I, if I was a good businessman, I'd be rich, and I'm absolutely opposite. I've never been good with money, and so on, so forth. Yeah. But I do love music, and yeah. so and I think if you're lucky, money can come with music. But you don't enter music to make money because I think uh -huh. you'd be doing doing it the wrong way. There are probably many other ways to make money rather than music. You know, probably. Yeah, I. that's one thing I was thinking about is it can't be easy. As great a band as the Vibrators is, they're not going to fill stadiums or anything and or even large theaters necessarily. In some spaces, maybe. It might be clubs with a few hundred people there, you know, who are the nostalgia that you talked about. And I thought, that's got to be, that can't be easy to trudge around this country. This country is huge, you know, for years and years, playing a bunch of shows hoping to just kind of keep it afloat and keep it going. Does it ever feel that way? No. Maybe I'm putting we, too negative a point on it. I have trudged all around America for decades. Um, I haven't done it yet with this new V2 band. We're about to release our first single. Now, oh, that nice. can change things. If the single got on the radio and did well, that could really help. Um, and, you know, you just put it out there and see what happens. I'm not going to trudge round as you put it and and then if it becomes depressing i'm doing the wrong thing but we will see it's all yeah. new at the moment so you've yeah. caught a band a new band happening at the beginning that's great are you, yeah. i'm guessing what would be really nice is to uh attach on some festivals or some bigger like and you've got sounds like you got lots of friends i mean maybe it's you i don't know dave wakeling and the English beat as the headliner and it's bow, wow, wow is in the middle and it's you as the opener or something like that. Right. That would be a very good idea. I've already been thinking of that. And, um, God, he, I can't remember what I was about to tell you. Uh, it's okay. Take no, that would be good. Show. And I like green day and I think the vibrators in green day are similar. I think we were doing it first, yeah. but that sort of power punk thing. And I yeah. saw them on new year's Eve, they were in LA and it was broadcast on TV and it reminded me how good they are. Now there's still a big market for green day and, yeah. and rightly so. And I yeah. think, you know, people say what you like, it's always hard to put it in the words, but I always say, well, the nearest American thing might be green day. I could and see that. So, uh, you know, melody, songs with good lyrics, but but energy and, and so on and so forth. So totally you never agree. know. Maybe we'll go out with them one day. But That'd there's a market for them. There could be a market for us. They have a new album coming. It came out today. So, oh, uh, yeah. So uh, there. hopefully there's some opportunity there. Just for anyone who doesn't know, explain why Knox isn't doing vibrators anymore. Well, he's quite old and frail. And he just had enough of being on the road. So what Knox does when the Vibrators make an album is writes all the stuff, sings in the studio, but won't tour. And that went on for quite a while, but there is no touring, as it was known. That disbanded in the pandemic, hence me moving to America and V2. I moved to America to, to marry my beautiful then-girlfriend, now-wife. But, I mean, I need something to do. And I thought, 
why not? You know, you start a new band called The Smelly Bicycles. You're in a huge lift that no one's ever heard of. You have a lane like the Vibrators V2, and at least it gives people an idea of where That's you're exactly coming exactly right. That's a yeah. very insightful thing to say. I it's love trademark. that. It's yep. trademark. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about moving to Philadelphia. Um, how long had you been with Cheryl? How did you about, even meet? Oh, gosh, well, we first met at the Iroquois Hotel in the early 80s when she was a reporter getting to interview the band. And we have a picture taken in the uh, lobby. And then we lost touch for many years and we refound each other on Facebook about 12 years ago, give or take. And we've been having a long distance. She loves London. She would fly here. I would fly there. And it sort of worked for a while. But in the pandemic, I thought I was going to lose her because neither of us could meet up. And it was really awful. And then we managed to meet in Ireland because before Brits could go to America or America's to Britain, we found middle ground. You could meet in Ireland. Mm. So we went and uh, met up in Ireland and stayed on a rock star's estate, no names mentioned, okay. and in the guest house. And we had a lovely time. And then as soon as the borders reopened, I went over to America and she came here. And then the last time I went there, I said, will you marry me? And she said, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I thought she'd see it coming. And apparently I totally surprised her. It was on her birthday and we went out for dinner in Philly. There's a restaurant called Park, P-A-R-C, which has got to be the nicest place there, French. And uh, the manager photographed it, uh, filmed it, videoed it. Yeah. And uh, I got down on one knee and said, asked her to marry me. And she said, yeah. And, you know, but, and we did about nine months later. Wow. Good for you. Yeah. How, yeah. Now, is this the first time you've lived full time in the States or did you yeah. do that sometime before? No, never. No, first time. Uh, They're very strict uh, on it in America. If you outstay yeah. your welcome of 90 days, you'll never go back there. Yeah, and I true. wasn't prepared to do that because I love America so much. Mm -hmm. So play by the rules, you know. Yeah. And But you know, I've got my green card, social security number, and permanent residency, which is amazing. No kidding. So and I got my are... first car. That was a game changer. I really? I get, guess what I got? I got a Buick Sentry. <laughs> And I love it. It's a big boat and it cruises along. And yes. um, the drummer's mother-in-law had it and it became superfluous to her needs. She couldn't drive because she's 94. And I was given it. I had to spend some money on getting uh -huh. it roadworthy. But sure. I, love, I never would have known. I didn't know anything about Buicks, but I love it. It's got a huge trunk. You could get not one, but two dead bodies in that trunk. <laughs> it's massive. I love it. It's big and beautiful. It's my boat. And you've got to love your car. Yes, you do. I totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, yeah that's port. funny. I was going to ask you what some of the adjustments you've had to make in your life to living in the States. Your car sounds great. What else? What are your favorite things about being in America and least favorite things? Right. I'll tell you, I've always loved America ever since the first day I set foot in 1979. I think America's a place if you're foreign, you can't be indifferent. You can love it, which most people do. Some hate it. Um, I always I love the fact that Americans, that jeu de vivre, they go, yeah, we can do this. And they mean it and they will. You yeah. know, they make things happen. It's yeah. not all bullshit. Yeah. And um, and I like that. 
Uh, I like the food. I love the culture. It's all about money that I don't like. But if you've got any bucks, everything is so easy. And if you haven't, God help you. Yes. America, you've got to meet the payments. Yeah. Otherwise, the repo man is there and everything else. It's, uh, and the thing I don't like about America, which I'm learning the hard way, is the healthcare system. In Britain, if you want to go see a doctor or an ambulance, it's there. It's a service in America. It's a business. And you're yeah. very much reminded of that all the time. And I must say, the country that's supposedly the wealthiest in the world that can afford to send missiles at the push of a button that costs millions can't let its own citizens see a doctor when they really need to. To me, there's something wrong there, but I'm not complaining and I'm not political. I, yeah. you know, I, I love America and I'm certainly prepared to overcome the insurance thing. Uh, it's just a different system. It's a it's a challenge for everybody. Everything you just said, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I realize that. I think a lot of people say and ask the same questions I do. Yeah. Yeah. But as Figure. long as it's a business, and I think the billion dollar com companies, the pharmaceuticals and all that, lobby Congress. From what I'm learning, you know, it, it there's no, it won't be changed in a hurry. People have yeah. tried, but it doesn't happen. No, no, there's too much money at stake. Um, okay, I wanted to ask you about your solo career too, because I was listening to the Bump in the Road album, and I really like it a lot. In fact, I like the, the title track. That's probably my favorite song on the album. This town is different, but the stars are the same. Wind from the east. And it whispers your name Now the lights are flashing And the crowd appears A sea of faces I wish yours was here Another bump in the road through the sun and the snow I hold you close to my heart But my head's in the show And I'll be home when it ends Then someday I'll be gone again After And you mentioned your daughter Melody earlier and I believe you two wrote New Wave together is that right no no she wrote another bump in the road it was our oh she did was it that one i thought it was a different one okay no, it was our first and only collaboration and i'll tell you i was writing and i you know i can write music quite easily i get a riff and then a song forms and i sometimes struggle with lyrics and i just said to my daughter by the way i'm doing my second solo album if you ever have any ideas for lyrics let me know she yeah. didn't say anything and i thought oh well two days later she sent me those and not oh. only was i gobsmacked by how good they were but i always thought she thought, oh dad yeah he's a musician he does that job the insight that she had yes. to life on the road and i couldn't believe it that yes. my daughter i mean she's a smart girl but i didn't realize she had any clue of the day-to-day -day things that i do and That's then not, and i wrote it the song and because it was acoustic and different it was obvious to me and um and uh oh god the producer pat collier that yeah. i thought it must be the single and it must be the title track sorry title yes. not single 
and it was and that's and it's that whole album is about life on the road that's the tell. idea that I love was it. what it is supposed to be a story in that the yeah. first one was just ideas i'd had for a few years and i'd never made a solo album before and it's funny when you're in a band everyone's got ideas and you interject and it's a compromise uh -huh. suddenly it was between me and the producer yes. and again i wasn't used to being in the driving seat you yeah. know yeah but, so that was the first one was just the first one and then um uh, the second one was more uh, had a theme 40 yeah, years on from the heart 40 years i love it and oh, something I find you. interesting about it is that it's not really punk rock. It's not, no. it's a different, it's more almost like Americana, you know? Well, you asked me earlier, coming back to your question that I skipped over without realizing, forgive me. I've never thought of myself as a punk, but it's funny. When I joined the members, we'd lie back and I'd be listening to Van Halen, say. <laughs> people say, what kind of music do I like? Well, being a guitarist, anything that features good guitar. I'm not a big Dave Lee Roth fan or everything, but anything. But when I heard Eddie play, I learned. You yeah. take things from every guitarist. You know, I learned from Carlos Santana as a kid. In the punk days, you had to pretend that anything before that never existed. It was not cool or groovy. Ridiculous. I remember seeing this clash slag off the Rolling Stones, and then they became the bloody Rolling Stones, you know, really, and so on. So it's publicity. It's the same old yeah. thing about piss the parents off and yes. say anything beforehand is shit yes. and then that gets you ahead it's just yeah. a technique yes. uh, the Crystals did exactly that be I offensive did. forgetting right. that the rolling stones were very offensive um 20 years prior to that yeah you know every generation has its new benchmark of what's offensive i feel like our generation today's people are especially grown-ups are are trying to deal with trans people or artists or the topic in general what do we do with this it's different i'm not used to it i don't know if i like it but that's the new that's becoming the new reality you know every generation has its new punk rebellion and they love it, and they love it because it gives them their time in the sun that generational yes. thing and yeah. that will become mainstream as well later on yeah. so yeah but um i worship Jimi hendrix as a kid because he was the ultimate guitarist and i listened to everybody and learned my trade. I would hear things on records and I'd take the needle and drop it and drop it and drop it until I learned how to play it. Yeah. One of the guitarists I adored was someone from New Jersey called Leslie West in a band called Mountain. Yeah, Mountain. Yes. Oh, he blew me away. I saw really? Leslie. I, I was so sad when he died. Nantucket Sleigh Ride. I mean, come on. So I was. I got a break in the punk era, but I don't know what a punk is. It doesn't mean putting a safety pin through your nose, in my view. Right. It's not a uniform. Yeah. I was an angry young man at the time, but I mean, you know, now I'm older. Yeah. So I grew up and got a break in the punk era. But I mean, what I liked, and then punk often is an excuse now just to make a noise. A kid goes to guitar center, buys a guitar, makes it as fuzzy as possible. And the number of support bands I've seen that like that around America, is just painful on the ears. So I think they do the name punk a disservice. I'm not a big fan of that badge. And I'd hate to be stereotyped as a punk. I'm a guitarist. And therefore, when it comes a chance to make a solo album, you know, fuck punk, I yeah. show them what I can do or how I'm feeling. Yes.
Yeah. Yes, uh, I have painted him in, as my one of my influences amongst many others. Right. I was listening back to the Fall Into the Sky album uh, from yeah. the Vibrators. You're on that, yeah. correct? This is oh, you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I love Oh, what an album. I'm so proud of that. It was the last one. We signed a deal saying it was the last Vibrators album. And um, again, Knox bought appalling demos and we turned it into that in about four days. And I just love it. It's classic. It's great. There's so many good songs on there. And you're right. They, they don't sound like punk bands from the 70s or the 80s trying to maintain some kind of street cred or there's just an energy there and you can call it punk or you can just call it rock and roll or whatever it's an energy that you still have you know what i mean well, I tell you, you've reminded me of one thing sorry to interrupt that no, joining the members really showed me punk was a revolution against the dinosaur bands like led yeah. zeppelin that would, i saw them live and jimmy would stand with his bow and for half an hour so they taught me that you do your best for solo, being the lead guitarist, in four or eight bars. That was a great discipline, yeah. not indulgent. So to this day, on, including on my solo stuff, apart from New Wave, where I play in a fade-out, um, I am given... Uh, I, I think it's better to shine in a short space of time. No one wants to hear people whittling on for the sake of it. I don't. No, I agree. I agree. There's a, there, I love this quote I read from uh, uh, Mick Ronson, where he was saying that too much guitar noodling is just science. And I always yes. think that's a good word for it, science, because then you're just getting things jumbled and overly complicated. Just keep it lean and mean, you know? You know when people start doing all these three-finger pull-offs, right? People do it like, look how clever I am, but I yeah. do it and I listen, and it doesn't move me. No. It has, music should move you. Yeah. That is the bottom line. And again, by doing short solos to four or eight bars to show what you can do in your best was such a good discipline. But all that widdly widdly stuff, uh, some kids might think, oh, he's so good at that. But once someone's done it once, then after that, it isn't new or groundbreaking. And it's frankly boring. I agree. I, before we, I wanted to mention too, before we move too much off of your solo albums, I love your version of Jerusalem.
and it's I do, and it's different. I mean, we just got done talking about guitars and energy. This song is not necessarily like that, but it's really great. What made you even conceptualize this particular version of Jerusalem? Well, on each album, like the first one, I did both sides now. Yes, Journey. you did, and, but, but that is like a rock version of both sides now. But you can't cover a great song. And I've never been a Joni Mitchell fan. I heard it on the radio and I thought, how would The Who play this? <laughs> Literally. And when we recorded all the others, I'll get to Jerusalem. I said to the boys in the studio at the time, I said, look, I just want to try this. Can we do it? We've got time. And we whacked down both sides now. And it's become one of the most popular songs. And because... If I tried to do it acoustically, it would have been appalling because Joni Mitchell had done that. But to take that song, because the lyrics were so good, and yeah. so I literally, if you listen, it's full of power chords like Pete Townsend. And I learned power chords as a teenager from Pete Townsend and then Angus Young after that. Yes. Okay. And um, so that's where that came from. And Jerusalem, so I thought, I'll keep the train going. I'll do one cover. And it's a great song, and I wasn't sure if anyone would recognise it, particularly in America. And I just thought I'd try. And then Pat Collier, the producer, who was the original bass player of The Vibrators, he um, said, just let me try putting this drum beat to it. And I thought, what? And then he did it. And I thought, fuck, that. that's so nothing like I had envisaged. But it worked. So we okay. did it. I love and, it. Um, and it was that simple. It was the last song, again, not only really? is it the last on the album but it was the last recorded one yeah and if i had time i'd do it and I, you're the one of the first to bring that up but i i don't listen back much and when i do i listen to the more rocky ones when i've listened to my uh -huh. in the road but um the fact you mentioned it has made my day job oh good i love really? it i just thought That's it was I, th I mean I, it's a pretty bulletproof song to begin with but your <laughs> version is such a welcome kind of left turn that i thought this You've is great yeah. If you cover a song, you've got to turn left. I completely it. agree with you. What's the point of covering a song that you're just going to do it like that? It was already done. What's the point? And a, bad, and a worse version to boot. Yes. When it's no a brilliant gonna, song. I totally agree. No one's going to listen to your version of a better song. Just do something different. Yeah. That's why I thought it was such a great version. Okay. We kind of, we kind of burned through this, but I did want to ask what, if you had any memories of working with Julian Lennon, I'm learning from you as well, which is great. Um, no, I didn't. I wasn't involved in the recording, but I knew their manager and they needed someone to go and not guitar, but play bass to tour Europe doing TV shows when Julian was suddenly catapulted into, yeah. into his moment in the sun. 
and uh, they paid me well for it. And every day it was ludicrous, unplanned. So I'd be in London, they'd send a car to take me to Heathrow to fly somewhere, play a TV show, stay the night, fly back to London, and then the next day fly me somewhere else. And if anyone had given it any thought, they would have kept you there and made you, you know, but I mean, money was no object in the 80s. You yeah, look back yeah. and they have all the record companies have money to burn. Yeah. Never seen anything like it since. I know. It's so true. So much money. <clears throat> wasted. Wasted money. I know. I and for good and bad, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. I do like I I talk to a lot of producers on here and uh like Steve. And it yeah. does I mean, people like no one is gonna have a Steve Lillywhite type of a career now because the budgets aren't there. I before he died, I had Rupert Hine on here a couple of times, who was just legendary for what he did. But you, you think, know he worked with the members, don't you? He did an no, album. No, I don't think I knew that. Oh, well, Rupert Hine did the second album. He did? I think. Yeah, we I worked with Rupert. I am um, Yes. If he did, I didn't know that, and that is amazing. Yeah. It was a Rupert Hine one. I got to know him quite well. I loved Rupert, and yeah. he's another is he one. Is he dead now? Yes, he died a couple of yeah. years ago. Yep. Yeah. No, yeah. Rupert did an album with us, the second I members. I did not know that. Oh, my gosh. Why aren't we educating each other on this, <laughs> on this podcast? <laughs> we are. <laughs> I probably should have known that. Yeah, but, I mean, I feel for people like him because, you know, the budgets were there and the – the industry was there. The machinations were there to make someone like Rupert be as successful as he was and help bands, other bands be as successful as they became because of him too. But then when that's not there, how does someone who like Steve or like Rupert or like any of the others, Daniel Lanois or anyone else I've talked to, they don't, the budgets aren't there for them to get to do what they do best anymore. So people like to... Trevor Horn has to go out and, 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 you know, be the buggles and tour with Seal and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah you got it. Only one or two huge bands still go into big studios for a long time. Yeah. Um, it's, the technology's changed. People do half of their album on a bloody laptop now. Yeah, they do. They yeah. really do. They they yeah. sample this and that. I, I'm not good on computers. I like to make a rough demo and go into a studio old school but people now the, the the electronic wizardry everything is digital and it's quick and people don't need the big budgets to make the music but there isn't budgets to make big videos so people find innovative ways they do it on their iphone for yeah. god's sake and uh, yeah. everything has changed and the fundamental thing that's changed when i was a kid People went on the road at a loss to sell bucket loads of albums and made their money. Now, now no one sells albums. Music is free with Spotify, and they make money by gigging. That's yeah. what's totally in my lifetime. Yeah, that's it. yeah. and uh, I, that's, I feel for people who are getting up there in age, and many mm -hmm. that I've talked to, who can't just go golf or retire and take it easy because yeah. they, because of this switch in the dynamic of a musical career, you and know, you see the one thing I've done all my life since I was a young boy is play the guitar. And yeah. I've never think, Oh, I'm, I'm a certain age. I'm going to put the guitar down. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. I play because I love it. Yeah. And therefore I don't think about retiring. Neither could I financially because mm -hmm. I don't have money. 
Yeah. So I don't know about the future. Who really does? You might worry about all these things and then someone drops a nuclear bomb and then you think from up, up there, you think, why was I worrying? That's and so, so on. I don't get me wrong. I'm not a doomsday merchant. Oh, no, I get it. You're not, you are absolutely right. Yeah, you you're absolutely do right. Do your best yep. right now. And that's all yep. any of us can do. I love it. Um, okay. I read a pretty interesting Iggy Pop story. Oh, I want yeah. you to tell us this story. Well, Iggy Pop, God, we used to stay at the Iroquois in West 44th Street in New York. Every band stayed there. And Iggy Pop was living there. And I remember seeing him on the street. He was odd, half naked, hanging out on the streets and stuff. So one day I come, we just arrived that day from London and we played a gig and uh, we were coming back to the hotel in dribs and drabs. And I walked into the lobby and there was Iggy. We'd never met before, and he went, hi. And I said, hello. And, um, you know, I was all sweaty and everything else. And he said, have you got anything to drink? And I said, well, actually, I just flew in today. I've got a litre of Bacardi. Why the fuck I bought it, I don't know. But I would have mixed it with Coca-Cola, and I would have liked it. And he said, well, I've got a bag of something else. Why didn't you bring it up to my room? And I thought, okay. And he gave me his room number. I said, give me five minutes just to go get change. So I go knock on the door with my Bacardi. And I go in and there's Iggy Pop's room where he's living in the Iroquois. There was a girl that never said a word in the tiniest little hot pants and a little top. Uh -huh. Literally trying to crawl up the wall. We were spaced out of our minds, talking bullshit. And I left at nine in the morning absolutely flying and we finished the bag and the bottle and um and i've never seen him since so that was my iggy pop story and uh that was it and uh you know we just talked bullshit all night he talked about i do remember he talked about how much he hated people spitting and i've seen him play and people were spitting i thought you're tolerant of it he suddenly hated it and he talked how much he liked working with david bowie that's all i remember and you ever did you ever meet bowie only once, yeah. I got. A, I took his photograph in a dressing room in Amsterdam, Holland. We oh. were. Do, I was with Julian Lennon's band, and we were doing the same TV show. And he walked into our dressing room, and I said, "Oh, hello." I said, oh. "Would you mind if I took a picture?" I, I had a camera, not a phone, and um, he thought was home. All right, and he put his. There was a sink, a little sink. And he put his hand on the tap. You know, being out there, he didn't want to just stand there. So right. he did something. Got to find that picture. And that was my... And then we were all in the bar that night in the American Hotel in Amsterdam. He was with Tin Man at the time. And she? he was touring with them. And he seemed very nice. But did I know him? Not at all. Wow. But I oh, that's him. great. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Okay. I have one other question for you. This is kind of an odd one. Did you ever watch Ted Lasso? God, my wife is crazy about it. I saw the first one or two episodes and I just thought, how ridiculous and implausible. Now, she, the day I arrive back next week, one of the guys in Ted Lasso is a stand-up comedian and she has tickets to see him in Philly. Um, but I just didn't get it. And also, I'm not a sports fan at all. Okay, okay. So, the brief answer is, I don't know anything about it, but my wife, Cheryl, uh, is huge. She's watched this whole thing more than once. <laughs> That's so funny. The person you're talking about is Brett Goldstein. And, That's uh, right. Yes. Yeah. 
And what the reason I mention this is because, and you since you have barely watched it, this may not even ring true. Maybe the listeners will. Every time the theme song starts in the show, it's sung by Marcus Mumford from the Mumford from Mumford and Sons, and it starts yeah. with this big guttural "Hey." And every time okay. it starts, it reminds me of the "Hey" from the Working Girl song. Okay. And so I've always wondered if if I'm the only one who thinks that, or if you like, you know, he kind of stole that from us, or it reminds you of the same thing. But if you don't watch the show, never mind. If Cheryl's listening, maybe she'll know what I'm talking about. She will be listening, and I will now watch the intro of a show to <laughs> see if I see what you see. But no, it just, I just thought, how ridiculous taking yeah. an incompetent American to run an English I just thought it was so implausible. Yes. I didn't get it. But, um, you know. I thought it was fun. And uh, I committed to the watch to the end, but I didn't think that it was any more special or better than anything else out there. So I was, I've always been sort of surprised by how beloved it is because to me it was pretty broad and kind of out there and not that, I mean, like you said, it's implausible, but it's fun. But anyway, the beginning of that, of the theme song reminds me of working girl. And I wondered if anyone else thought that. Okay. Last question. Yes. What is your favorite memory? When you look back on this entire career of yours, we've talked about partying with Iggy. We've talked about your buddies, Adam Clayton, Steve Lillywhite, and everybody else. When you look back to someone like me, what's your favorite story? What's your favorite thing when you're like, you would not believe this happened to me? Well, I think we've covered a lot of it. Like really? I said, Redding, uh, unusual encounters with people like Iggy. I mean, yeah. you meet everybody from Mick Jagger downwards. So I've done all that. So that doesn't impress me. But uh -huh. um, I don't. I feel like I belong. It's a feeling that I'm doing my job when I'm playing a gig and people are looking up, smiling. It's that simple. Because we can all feel lost in this modern world of social media with okay. everyone putting their imaginary world forward to show everyone else how great they are and make you feel less than and all that sort of thing. Teenagers kill themselves over it. Yeah, but yeah. something clicks if simply I'm playing a gig, big or small, and it's going well. It's like everything has added up to that moment. And I don't mean to be cheesy, but that's probably it. Because sure. the single incidences we've covered I mean, the feeling of saying, when I first saw ACDC at the Hammersmith Odeon in London, that absolutely blew me away. If I went and saw Leslie West play, that blew me away. Things like that, the feeling I get off music, because and people forget that it is feeling. Like I said earlier, the Widdly Widdly, it's got to be about emotion and totally connection. Agree. You have to reach other people somehow in here yes. for really it to do its magic. Music is magic and it's emotion. Yes. I so when comes, so all looking back over the entire career, it would be those emotional moments that have touched me. Yeah. Pure yeah. and simple. That's Not beautiful. What you think it might be, you know? Yes, I do. I'm getting all goosebumpy, you just saying this. So the the path forward right now is to build vibrators V2 as best you can in the States and anywhere else, touring and playing and getting on shows and festivals and whatever. That's the plan going forward. Absolutely right. And when I've done the new single, they're doing the bass line on Sunday while I'm away. I did the guitars and the guitar solo. The drummer's done his bit. And then we'll get back and do the vocals. But I'll send it to you if you're interested. Please do. Please do. Right. What's it called? 
It's called Train to Concha Hockin. And there's a there's a place outside Philly called Concha Hockin. Now, being new to the Philly area, I just that name sounded musical to me. Uh-huh. And the the first line of the chorus is on a train to Concha Hockin, I saw a girl and she was rocking. And the rest <laughs> you will you will find out later. All right. Yes. But I okay. loved that word. And I thought all the local people in Philly will know Concha Hockin. Yes. And if it gets broader listenership and people like it, they will check out what Conchalkin is. Yes. Everything's Googleable. Conchalkin, yes. oh, it's a town outside Philly. So I just like the word, right? And you yes. need inspiration to write a song. Good for you. That's great. Nigel, thank you for talking with me. You've done so much that means to me. Thank you for being such a good guy. I appreciate oh, man, it. Thank you. It's my pleasure, too. It's lovely. It's eight o'clock in the evening in London. I'm going to go and uh, put my foot up as I'm instructed by my wife. She reminds me all the time. It's nice to have someone to care and look after me. It is. 20 years since I was married before, living alone. And my wife is absolutely wonderful. And I just, it's just, I've got so much to look forward to. Marriage, a new band, America. Yes. I know. I keep thinking about, this is such an interesting new next, I was going to say last, but hopefully it's not next chapter in your life. Is where, yeah. what you're embarking on now. Well, I'm All 66, new things. and people might think, oh, what can you do? But you can reinvent yourself at six. I'm not reinventing. I'm starting a new life, if you like. Yes. 66 and in this day and age is still pretty spry. That's not that it, old. When you're a man, you're as young as the woman you feel. That's what they always <laughs> <laughs> You like that, do you? And my wife's 10 years my junior. So there you have it. I've never heard that one. That was great. Now you have. Now you have. <laughs> so good. You get all the people up on their horses now about, oh, it's so sexist, but it's no, not. No. Humor for fuck's genius. sake. You That's know? A, humor. A, that is genius. <laughs> oh, thank you, Nigel. Thanks for chatting right. with me. It was so fun. Have a good one. All right, there you have it, Nigel Bennett. Pretty great guy, right? Love that. I just love people like Nigel. And, I mean, <laughs> it's interesting that his business now is punk rock and making new music in that vein. But you can see that people like him are just so multifaceted. It's not all about punk rock to them, but that's where they've kind of made their bets. That's where they're going all in. And lucky for him, he still makes great music. And the Vibrators V2 are lucky that he's the one out there kind of furthering the cause. I want to close it out with another song off the last Vibrators album. This is Burning You Up. Sorry, burning me up, not burning you up. Anyway, uh, I'm not 100% sure what we're going to go with next week. I think it's going to be a member of a band who are still very active, still out there, still touring a lot. In fact, they have a new album and a new tour happening very quickly. But in the mid-90s till the early 2000s, they were one of my very favorite bands. And so I'm. this is an interview I've been trying to make happen for almost a year or more, and it finally is happening. So I think that's what's going to be up next week. Uh, you guys saw we put out a bunch of bonus material this weekend. There was the deep dive with Mike Scott of the Water Boys. There was Joel Selvin's uh, book club. I have an extra copy of that to give away to Patreon supporters, so look for that. And, um, yeah, I, I only have a couple more bonus things in the can before I'm probably going to take a little break. Poor Yan has had just way too many things on his plate lately. lately. But, uh, anyway, we'll get them out there as soon as we can, okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you.